0: We have a uh, and router, you're
1: and if you don't have a good asset inventory uh, story already laid out, that can take. Yeah, that's where a lot of tools, you know, uh, fall down if they only have an interface that allows you to uh, in the third-party SaaS vendors, uh, you know, which can be considered part of your asset inventory. Uh, so. That is typically the way that most people are going to get into uh, your resources, and so things in kubernetes are completely different and there you really will be out of uh, touch if you're trying to uh, for me automation can be overdone so it's super important in cases where you have
0: hi everyone welcome back to another episode of scale to zero i'm purshutam co-founder and cto of cloud annex today's topic includes asset management asset management in the cloud kubernetes and how, like, what role does it play when it comes to security? And to discuss on this topic, we have uh, Keston Broughton with us. Uh, he presented a talk at this year's Forward CloudSec uh, with colleagues from Autonomous uh, Driving Company Neuro about cloud asset inventory, uh, in particularly in GCP. Uh, earlier, uh, like in 2018, he gave a talk, "All your trusts belong to us," uh, at uh, Forward CloudSec again about his research on confused deputy uh, problem with AWS uh, for like cross account assume roles uh, with SaaS vendors. Uh, He has spent uh, three years developing the cloud services uh, line at uh, Uh, Praetorian, Praetorian, sorry, uh, as well as pen testing, IoT, web apps, DevOps infrastructure, Kubernetes, and consulting on secure design reviews. Uh, He has a degree in math and physics has spent over 12 years in software development, DevOps and security. And fun fact is once he rode his bicycle from all the way from Vancouver, Canada to Chiapas, Mexico. Uh, So there are two things that I want to uh, ask. Uh, Thank you so much for coming to the show. Did I say the uh, name correctly, the cloud services line company? That was one. And then how many days did it take for you to bicycle all the way from Vancouver to Mexico? (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right. Yes, you got it right. Uh, Praetorian was the <clears throat> the uh, sort of cloud security pen testing role that I had for several years. Uh, that's a company in Austin that does uh, broad spectrum security uh, testing. And um, how long did it take? Well, I I left vancouver september 13th i arrived in austin december 13th so i was stopping every couple of days and working on farms and things like that uh so three months is a long time you know you don't need to spend that long if you're riding that far uh Mm -hmm. then i jumped on a bus to get to northern mexico and rode another four or five weeks uh, in mexico to get from northern mexico to uh to chiapas so quite a while (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Must have been fun as well, like uh, fun and rewarding, uh, I would assume. It It, it is for sure good. challenging. but uh... it
1: really, really great. Yeah. The weather probably was the most challenging. I was being chased by winter all the way down. So I went down through like Idaho, Utah and uh, Colorado. Ah. And at points, uh, yeah, uh, I was getting caught with snow on the ground and I'd pitch my tent and wake up in the morning with a big kind of outline of my body where I'd melted all the snow. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really great complement to doing DevOps work, uh, and then eventually I felt like, okay, well, uh, I've got these new skills now in se- in security, like the, uh, on the offensive side. I'd really like to get back into building some more. I kind of find that a really creative process. So, so uh, that's sort of what led me back into uh, the sort of uh, security plus DevOps side of the house, I guess DevSecOps. Lovely. And, uh, yeah.
0: yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to like learning some of it. Uh uh as part of today's uh, discussion uh so let's start with the uh, security section right and uh i generally ask this to all the guests and we get different answers from everyone right For, because everyone's day looks very different so how does your day look like uh today all typical right. day
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll give you the sort of like snapshot from my current uh, life, which is joining a new company. I find that's like one of the most interesting (laughs) clients because I like to go very broad at first and kind of understand uh, how the company works. What are all of its assets? Actually, it's one of the the times where I really focus on asset inventory because I Mm -hmm. want to understand what are all the things that are under their control. And, you know, very often you find that the security team might be really focused on their dominant cloud, but they actually have, you know, a, a footprint you know, in the yeah, cloud yeah. and and those might be neglected because, you know, they're not part of the main engineering thrust, but they are actually pretty important because uh, I've found in the past that very often the the breaches come from those non-dominant clouds that, you know, that, that aren't as uh, heavily scrutinized. So, uh, the other thing that I like to do a lot is I, I hang out in the org chart a lot. So I'm meeting people all the time. Those first few weeks have a lot of one on ones as part of the onboarding process. And uh, I like to under- get some context on, you know, where they are in the organization. Um, also, just keep referring back to that org chart to understand mm-hmm. like the structure of the company at this point in time. So I do for a bit of that. Um, and then uh, uh, Try and join a lot of channels. So you know, if it's a Slack company, then join a, uh, as many Slack channels as I can where uh, we might have a role to play as a security team. And what I'm looking for is usually signs of friction. So where where are things you know fragile? Where are things uh, being slowed down? And very often you'll find there's a bit of an intersection, you know, like developers are really good at writing code, but when it comes to deploying in the cloud, very often, you know, there'll be issues with the identity where proxy or, you know, like a, a getting least privilege or rolling it out through Terraform or things like that. And so hanging out in various channels where you can absorb that information and understand, you know, what is slowing this uh, engineering team down and then mm-hmm. what of those things overlap with security. And that's my role is to like, make that make those pain points go away in a way that mm-hmm. ends up a more secure uh, deployment process.
0: so it sounds like you have your hands full so yeah. let's start with the asset management, right uh, you highlighted that uh, that's one of the things you focus early on uh, as well so yep. one of the one of the quotes from uh, Daniel Meisler from his blog says that asset management is arguably the most important component of a security program. But I know virtually zero companies that have a security person dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. Can you help our audience? What is it trying to highlight here?
1: Sure. So one of the most basic questions is like we have an IP and we want to know, you know, is it ours? Might be the question, or is it malicious? Or does this IP live in GCP or AWS? Your, you know, uh, your cloud infrastructure is it an on-prem IP? Something like that. And so a good asset inventory will be able to answer that question very quickly. And if you don't have a good asset inventory uh, story already laid out, that can take a day or longer, you know, uh, because you have to find out, you know, like, it could be coming from so many different systems, you have to find the owners of those systems, get permission to get in there uh, and look around, Uh, you might have to rely on other people to do these things. And so having everything built into a nice you know, data lake or a, a data warehouse or something like that where you've got all of your feeds coming in and uh, you know that if it's in there, you'll find it with your query within a matter of seconds. That's that's what asset inventory is all about is being able to answer questions about your organization in mm-hmm. a really, really short period of time.
0: Okay. And so one follow-up question to that is like you, uh, you took a very good example, which is IP, right? When you are getting that data and ingesting it into your data lake are you trying to find bare minimum data sets uh, metadata around it or you're trying to get as much as you can so that you can use that later for correlating with other assets or other owners of the system
1: yeah so typically um you want to have feeds that are, uh, you can do snapshots for things that are, are slow, like an, uh, a static IP on an EC2 instance or something like that. It's fine to have a daily snapshot. If you're dealing with IPs attached to Kubernetes, it has to be like much you know, more kind of a streaming type thing. Uh, but the thing that I really like, and this is why I often build my own tools, is being able to enrich that data. So, you know, if it's, um, if it's an IP, you want to know is mm-hmm. that IP associated with a load balancer is it protected by your uh, CloudFront or Vercel or whatever it is that you have at the edge um, mm-hmm. or uh, a CDN or, or something like that? So you do need to be able to string all of these things together to be able to answer the question more completely as quickly as possible. So yeah, that's where a lot of tools you know, uh, fall down. If they only have an interface that allows you to ingest and then re- retrieve the information as it was put in, then you mm-hmm. don't have to enrich it and typically that enrichment process is going to be so different from one company to the next that it won't be out of the box you need to do some of that work yourself
0: okay so uh like uh, enrich as much as you can so that it uh, it adds more value when you are querying the data let's say later great. on uh yep. so one one question that comes to my mind is uh at what stage of a company should i start thinking about it should it be uh, from day one, or uh, let's say if you're running a startup, you hit a certain point and then you start thinking about it. What's your take on that?
1: You know, one of the things that is always a sore point in asset inventory is uh, the third-party SaaS vendors, uh, you know, which can be considered part of your asset inventory. So uh they're not you know it's not compute that you own it's things mm-hmm. that are cloud services but you're granting them access into your systems and so you need to be able to say you know if this vendor gets popped is that some a vendor that we use or not so that's that's why it ties into asset inventory you need to be able to answer that question very quickly uh mm-hmm. and the, the thing i found it almost most of the companies that I've looked at over time is very few of them can answer that question. So there aren't a lot of companies that uh, can give you that list. And, and part of the reason is that list is usually 300 to 500 long these days. Things have changed a lot in the last 10 years where you know you used to have this sort of very uh, strong sense of we have a perimeter and now mm-hmm. that perimeter so full of holes, it's so Swiss cheese because everything is connected to the the web. Uh, That means that it's a much harder problem. And so that would be the one that I would focus on if I were, uh, you know, doing a startup, I would Mm -hmm. keep track of that also for other reasons, for cost reasons, making sure that, Mm -hmm. you know, very often you'll have like a champion of a tool come to the company and they'll like get it going and stuff and you're paying, you know, $100,000 a year for it or something like that, that champion leaves and now you're not squeezing the juice out of that thing anymore. Uh, and so you want to have this as a process uh, where you make sure that every one of these SaaS tools has an owner, has a champion, um, you, that you can justify the cost, that you're getting good value out of that tool and, and that you're not needlessly duplicating. Very often there'll be two tools and you have both of them. And, and you know, from the outside, it looks like, well, oh, these two tools do the same thing. But when you get down to it, there's like nitty gritty reasons why you have like, you know, it's the right tool for this job. And then the other tool is, uh, fills in some other gaps or something like that. But mm-hmm. then what's lost in, in, for lack of asset and inventory or a sort of a, a process um, is, when to choose those for other people who come to the company. Like, a, you know, like if I have the ability to front with uh, a cloud front uh, mm-hmm. a, as my CDN or um, uh, could be one of the many other like options for uh, a CDN that is not part of the cloud. And there's reasons that you might need to do that. What's What's lacking very often is that decision process that will guide the next person that comes through that doesn't see like, oh, these are, I can choose one or, or, or the other at random. There needs to be a really clear process of why you choose one versus the other. So that would be uh, for a, a start or an early stage company. I would say make sure that you have a good grasp on your SaaS, uh, your SaaS spend, and, mm-hmm. and that you're getting value out of it, and that you can explain if you have two things that look like they're doing the same thing, when to use one versus the other.
0: Yeah so i like that's a very good point i can relate to it as well like the champions SaaS champions that you highlighted right that mm-hmm. often happens that hey were, uh, there was a design process followed to come to a conclusion and uh, there was a champion who was owning it once they leave uh, either the new person who is owning it is not clear what like what were the design like decision criterias and they Either do not use it anymore and they look for a new tool uh, yeah. while they are paying for the first tool as well. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, it like you are absolutely right that having the decision process documented, handover between the owners uh, will make sure that the, the tool is getting used for the purpose it was sort of acquired, right? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, spot on. Um, on the um, asset management, I want to ask one more thing, which is like not all assets are have the same significance, right? Let's say an S3 bucket storing sensitive data versus storing internal logs or GCP instance, which is connected to uh, the world via a public subnet or something versus instance in a private subnet. So when you are going through uh, like when you are starting the asset management program, uh, how do you prioritize which, which assets to track uh, and which ones to maybe ignore in the first uh, version, and maybe go to that uh, next.
1: Right. So I usually start from the outside in, and uh, that typically means DNS. So um, DNS is an asset in the sense that, like the they call them properties in some uh, you know DNS managing tools. Um, That is typically the way that most people are going to get into uh, your resources. And so very very often there are dangling subdomains. So somebody creates a record that points to an IP in a cloud, and that IP is somewhat ephemeral, right? You don't have that forever if you turn off the service, but forget to remove the, the DNS. Now you're pointing at a public IP. And turns out that you know, people have done this. Uh, it's not that difficult to write a program that will just loop through and request an IP and throw it away, request an IP and throw it away until uh, you found that one that uh, you know, is being pointed to. And now you have like companyname.com points to an IP address that you own. From that, mm-hmm. from that standpoint, you can now do all sorts of attacks uh, and, and use their, uh, either the SEO that uh, was associated with that page to kind of like boost your traffic to that Endpoint that you now control, or launch attacks because there's some trust between, uh, you know, uh, a domain and its subdomain, or things like that. So it, it's one of those things that uh, is important to keep a handle of. Mm-hmm. Another one of the situations where there's often a lot of spread, and you don't have a good control, and it's like very common uh, that you will have to do some work to track down, oh, where does this domain, where's it managed? Like where's the registrar? And very often you'll find if it's a younger company, oh, it's still in the name of the founder or something like that. And like, he doesn't check those emails, right? If there's a a warning that your certificate's about to expire or something like that. So there's often kind of like a a corralling that needs to be done around your DNS management. So that's one of those ones that that I think sticks out early on that you need to Mm -hmm. be able and then also, you know, if you're doing like what I mentioned, like hanging out in the Slack channels and looking for things, uh, you need to know where to go and look and see, you know, okay, here's the, they'll usually give you a URL, which has the domain name in it. And now I want to start at the top. I want to start at the outside and see, you know, do we have a WAF in front of that? Do we have uh, CDN or bot protection or anything like that? And that's all, all that information is easiest to get if you have a good understanding of the DNS.
0: Yeah. So you highlighted a very good one. Uh, Because it's very common to have dangling DNS uh, entries which are mapped to IPs which uh, at one point you owned but now have been released. So they're open and it's fairly easy to get that information as well. Like there are many open source tools which uh, you can run to on any domain uh, because DNS information is public. Right. So you can run on any domain and then you can start sort of uh, as you highlighted, like write a Python program to see whether it has a, a mapping or not and then you can use that for your attack let's say right yeah. so you start from external attack vectors and get uh, like go inside from there
1: mm-hmm. that's right
0: makes sense uh, makes a lot of sense now uh, i want to change like uh, slightly increase that uh, scale right so nowadays everybody is moving to kubernetes a lot of folks let me say uh, sure. moving to kubernetes right So how does this change when it comes to the Kubernetes world? Because a lot of workload that we create in Kubernetes is ephemeral. And uh, how do you track uh, in that case?
1: Right. So the talk that we gave um, at for CloudSec was about how we leveraged Google's cloud asset inventory. In AWS, that would be config, uh, AWS Config Service. And so, uh, what we're doing right now is just to take a daily snapshot, and that is sufficient for most uh, most things, like DNS records or uh, EC2 instances. Sorry, uh, e- your VMs and things like that. The things that don't change that rapidly, and and capturing it, you know, on a daily basis is fine. Things in Kubernetes are completely different, and there you really will be out of. Uh, touch if you're trying to debug something or troubleshoot something very often those things uh, d- will be less than a day old <clears throat> and mm-hmm. so that's a, a case where you need to either snapshot very frequently or or a better way that is supported, I think, by most clouds is to use a feed. And so the thing is, the cloud has all of this state, right? So it's just how do you ask your cloud to do it? And the wrong way we argue in our talk is to, uh, you know, if you've got 200 accounts and maybe 100 Kubernetes clusters uh, spread out all over the place, to do a for loop over every cluster, and then for every cluster, do a for loop over every whatever namespace, or you know, how it is that you need to go and get all your results, and you might have to paginate the results out. And, and everything mm-hmm. like that. It's a big mess and it takes a long time. You might end up DDoSing your system because you're making so <laughs> many calls APIs. There's like all sorts of things that can go wrong. All that data is there in the cloud. So uh, it's really upon the cloud providers to expose that information in a way that it is easy for the end customers. And uh, so we did half of the job at Google, which was getting the slow moving stuff out of Cloud Asset Inventory. GCP has cloud asset inventory feeds as well which would be the next step is mm-hmm. tackling those things that are, you know remove them from the daily snapshot and now just use feeds so that you're you know continuously getting the updates and you have that same uh, state information that the cloud has on the back end that's what you really want
0: okay so continuous feed uh, let's say you have a webhook or something you have configured so that you're constantly getting the data and then you feed that into your data lake so that you have the latest uh, information. Yeah, uh, I think
1: both, uh, the clouds that I've looked at will have a pub sub, so you can choose the, the the cloud asset inventory to dump to uh, you know buckets or to send to a pub sub feed, and that's where you would trigger off of that and update your database on the back end.
0: Yeah, so I have seen some uh, folks also using PubSub push it to let's say BigQuery or something, so that they can query later on yep. uh, using that data. Uh, yeah, makes sense. Uh, now, um when it comes to like uh, let's say kubernetes or cloud native environments it relies on automation quite a bit right uh, which can sometimes make it challenging to ensure that the security measures are applied correctly uh, let's say there is a misconfigured automation then that could introduce vulnerabilities which could be difficult to identify and rem- uh, remediate so what role does automation play when it comes to devsecops
1: right Um, so for me, uh, and I might have a slightly different opinion from like the, the majority out there, uh, for me, automation can be overdone. So it's super important in cases where you have multiple environments, dev stage prod, you need things to be the same. It's super Mm -hmm. important. A lot of actors working on it at the same time. Um, so like, you know, a large team that uses the same environment, again, super important to have that change control so that people don't step on each other's work. Um, and it's super important if you're gonna be frequently updating it, because again, that means like, you're gonna have a lot of change and you need to have more change management. Mm-hmm. I think it can be overdone in that, if you're setting up, you know, very often on the security team, for example, we don't have dev, dev stage, prod, we're just making sure that we get all logs to a central system. That can be done uh, in many different ways. And, and very often it won't be presented in a Terraform or something like that. If it mm-hmm. is, that's great. That That's what I'll use. But if it's going to be extra work to go from, you know, deploying it, which might take an hour to, mm-hmm. you know, making it really robust and an excellent sort of IAC uh, story, to me, that's where you might be spending a little bit more time on your infrastructure as code, rather than doing more security business logic type things. Uh, and yeah, and and the thing is, uh, Terraform models the cloud's state, but the state has the you know, the cloud has the true state, and the mm-hmm. Terraform model of it can drift out of date. So as providers get old, or you know, there's new updates to providers. I've seen things as simple as you know, it used to be the default was an empty string, and now the default is none, and that change mm-hmm. means that even though I didn't touch this deployment, now it's broken, and I have to spend time to go and fix it. And if it's a mono repo of Terraform, there might be a backlog of like three or four other things that are broken that need to be fixed before I can fix my thing. That's where you start to feel like, oh, you know, is this really providing me the extra value? I have my asset inventory in the cloud. I can query the cloud directly and I know it. What is the change management step there? Well, if this is only gonna be done once, if you're only gonna like deploy it and forget it because it works and and you're great, that was our experience with, uh, you know, cloud asset inventory. We deployed it with a cloud function, it was done. We actually did do it in Terraform, uh, but it's one of those cases where I think you could just deploy it Mm -hmm. manually or deploy uh, some G cloud commands or something like that. You're never gonna touch that again for, you know, probably at least a year. And if you are gonna spend more time, you know, doing infrastructure as code, you know, putting it in Terraform, that might not be your best use of time because, like I say, there are things with Terraform maintenance over time. It's not a, a zero maintenance uh, effort. And so if you're going to spend more time maintaining it because it's in Terraform as opposed to uh, you know uh, some other deployment method, then I think you should consider those other deployment methods. Okay.
0: So yeah, it's definitely like you have a different perspective uh, compared to others because most folks say that, yeah, we should automate everything. But I see Everything. your point, where let's say either the cloud provider has changed some of the base uh, some of the parameters as you said right earlier. It was uh, empty string now it is null, or the Terraform modules have got outdated. You need to change the parameter or something like that. You just end up maintaining it, even though it doesn't add any value to the business or from a security perspective either. So yeah, it it makes a lot of sense. So now uh, the the next thing that I want to talk about is. Uh, often security-related tasks uh, when it comes to uh, either automation or even doing things uh, manually, right, like asset management, uh, uh, which can be automated as well, is often seen as roadblock to business growth because often security teams are seen as, hey, they're going to block us from moving to uh, uh, production or something like that. So how can security teams work with other business units uh, so that they can show that, hey, we... Uh, can help the organization to increase revenue or improve the bottom line?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of the primary things we can do is help engineering go faster. And so typically, uh, you know, if if a security organization gets the reputation of being the house of no, then uh, it won't be able to play that role as well. And so one of the things that I'm doing right now, for example, is I'll be looking through the logs uh, and looking for um, permission denied errors and mine that information and, and try and understand oh do we have a lot of you know permission denied errors shouldn't really be happening in prod so that's like it's a it's a very interesting thing from a security perspective in prod you shouldn't really have uh, also queries in general like get iam role y- you know who is needing mm-hmm. to ask you know the iam role permissions in prod that should all be known in advance it should all be part of your iac yes you should be deploying okay. your into your prod but uh you know for other environments uh, where you do have those questions going on, it's nice to reduce the noise. And so, mm-hmm. very often, I'll find that there are there is a lot of noise around IEM because that's you know people deploy things, they change things a little bit, and now it doesn't work, or they're trying to follow along uh, a blog and they, they can't get it working. That's a lot of friction, and uh, that's something that you know is security adjacent. It might mm-hmm. be closer to uh, you know SDLC, the developer engineering experience, but some place it's a it's a place where security can really help. By creating, like, this is the way to do IAP, uh, in a, in, like identity aware proxy. And that's something mm-hmm. that is very common. Any, any engineer who has to do um, an admin panel, a page that's only available to the back end engineers, that sort of thing, making sure that it's very clear there's like one very well trodden road that's like published as the documentation of how to do it. And then there's like five or six different ways that your engineers would like to be able to use it. And that's where they are discovering a lot of friction in like implementing that. And so if you can develop out, like here are the many different ways of doing, you know, an identity where proxy for your backend, Admin panels, then now you can you reduce, you're, you're actually going to reduce the amount of calls that you see of these errors because you've solved that problem and you've made it like you've then given that over to the engineers and they're able to do it much more quickly. So I would say that's one of the main things is like areas where it is a security thing, but it's um, a friction point for deployment. Um, because we have so much now uh, on the the developers that that is closer and closer to deploying uh, mm-hmm. those, are, those are the things to really look for as a security engineer where you will make a lot of friends you know if you can if you can speed up these times you I think security engineers should be very aware of Dora metrics or whatever it is that the engineering team uses to measure their velocity because mm-hmm. we should At those as well uh, and making sure that those things that we ask them to do don't negatively affect those DORA metrics. So uh, the big one there that would affect it would be uh, a code scanning tool. So where if you put a gate of code scanning in front of deployment, you've inserted yourself in what should be a very tight development loop and should be very efficient. Um, And so you have to find a way, and maybe that is doing a post-deployment check. And yes, that does mean that you might have deployed uh, some vulnerability for a few hours, hours. But if that means that over this course of a year, you're able to like meet, meet two or three more sprint objectives, then that's probably going to be worth it unless you're in a, a domain where you don't have that tolerance for risk. Right. right.
0: So I think uh, I liked how you started that ultimately uh, like security teams should help engineering team move faster, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's, that, that's what helps the organization to, let's say, increase the revenue or improve the bottom line and uh, find the friction uh, between security and engineering and enable or help the engineering team understand how they can move faster while also keeping security in mind. Uh, The thing that you highlighted, like showing let's say vulnerability information post-deployment rather than pre-deployment, of course, if you have the tolerance for it, then uh, maybe that can still uh, not block the engineering team to move forward, but at least can help uh, them understand the priority of those vulnerabilities for, let's say, next release, right? So that yeah. way, both the teams have uh, wins out of it. So uh, one, one another question that uh, comes to my mind, uh, and again, uh, around asset management, uh, in your recent uh, presentation at Forward CloudSec, um, you shared some learnings, right? Uh, your colleagues shared some learnings on asset management. Uh, where, where do you see uh, asset management capabilities provided by, let's say, cloud provider, let's say the GCP Cloud Asset Inventory or AWS Config? Where do they fall short?
1: Right. So, with both GCP and AWS, uh, they provide a GUI for you to be able to go and do queries. But it's quite limited. Uh, it's not like a full SQL query, and you can't do joins, which is like the thing that I mentioned earlier. You really want to enrich all of the asset inv- inventory information you have so that you can uh, answer more interesting questions. And so, in both cases, the cloud providers give away to dump your asset inventory from the service into, for GCP, it's BigQuery, for AWS, it's Athena. And so that's the right way to go. So you remove that limitation on your ability to do queries um, mm-hmm. and join data when you when you put it into a proper querying engine. And so that's one of the main things. Uh, the other place where they fall short is, uh, I guess the the next important thing is now that you found the asset, now that you found that IP and, you know, what's what vm it's associated with if you want somebody to fix it you have to know who is the owner and so uh that's where you know you, that's one of the next steps is enriching your data set with ownership so that could come mm-hmm. from your t- your infrastructure's code. It could come from your um, uh, your GitHub repos. You know the code owners file. You might be able to map that to infrastructure in some way. Uh, and so uh, it might be come from tagging. Actually, that's one of the really like underutilized things in uh, in cloud right now. Not many companies have a strong tagging. Um, Story, but that's one of the places where, yeah, if everything that you deploy has a tag of an owner, then you now have it like right in the place where it should be like uh, the the cloud knows who the owners are to go and fix things, and you just have to query that uh, if not though, then you have to enrich that with like I say some of the some of the Uh, secondary information that you might have. Uh, Those are kind of the the main places. And then there is like a higher level of intelligence, which comes from connecting different resources, which is Mm -hmm. like the graph layer. So you, you know, if your typical asset inventory looks like an AWS spreadsheet, the graph layer puts it into a spider web. And now you're able to like wiggle over here, this IP attached to this load balancer is attached to this uh, route 53 is attached to this, you know, and so on and so forth. And uh, that can really help you if you are trying to do some end to end type stuff, like a, a more holistic thing, like, you know, tra- uh, blocking bot traffic, you need to know all of the stages that passes through on the way to your your origin server, so that you can mm-hmm. uh, intelligently tweak all the different layers in between. And that's where having a graph view of your asset inventory really helps a lot.
0: Makes sense. So one follow-up uh, question is like you highlighted a few things, right? Like uh, uh, let's say either you use, let's say, tags uh, to understand owners or code owners file uh, or even use the Terraform uh, uh, code to understand that. So there is mm-hmm. some sort of effort needed from, let's say, DevOps or engineering so that you can enrich the asset information, right? So right. what type of effort do you generally see that teams need to consider when they're, let's say, going through sprint planning or something like that uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, work on the asset inventory or asset management?
1: Right. So the right I mean, it's good to consider these assets at the planning phase, for sure, especially if you're introducing a new service like uh, in the mm-hmm. cloud that hasn't been used before that needs to go through a security design review. Or if you're introducing mm-hmm. a new connection to a SaaS provider, those are two common things where you definitely wanna get that through. Uh, you know. And, and that's good that your engineers now know that these are parts of the assets uh, of a deployment system that require a security review and they know to ask for it. But I think actually, mm-hmm. um, uh, blocking or, or monitoring these things can be done at the tooling level. So you can have linter that will refuse mm-hmm. to deploy something if it doesn't have a tag on it for example and so it's more like convince everybody that this is a worthwhile effort that it makes sense to know who the owners of your assets are and then build that in as a new requirement you might not fix everything backwards compatible wise but you might say every new deployment uh and you build it right into your terraform modules or something like that so that it has a tag there and that's part of the thing that is a required you know uh, component and now you have it, like you know, built into your tooling. You don't have to nag people about it. You just have to get the buy-in first uh, to make sure right. that it's worth the, the little bit of engineering effort to get you there.
0: Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. Like um, showing the value, uh, convincing them how it adds value, and then uh, going one step at a time so that it gets added as part of the the engineering pipeline. Uh, yeah. yeah, that that's uh, spot on, uh, and. Yeah, that, that's a great way to end the security questions uh, section as well. Thank you so much, question, for uh, joining with me and sharing uh, your insights with us. It was a fun conversation. Here are a few important points which stood out for me. The first one is when it comes to asset management, always start from outside in like DNS uh, to understand your dangling subdomains or Public IPs, which are sort of overexposed, and work with your uh, work towards in, inside of your uh, infrastructure. Second one is uh, for asset inventory. Get data from multiple sources so that you can use that to enrich uh, the data that you have in your uh, data lake. The third one is security teams should understand the point of friction with engineering teams and enable them to move faster and roll out more and more features thank you um, so let's go to the uh, fun uh, part which is rating security practices okay. uh, so the way it works is i'll share a security practice and uh, you need to rate it uh, that one to 5 one being the worst and five being the best and uh, uh, why if you want to add some context uh, you can do that as well okay okay so so the first one is uh granting users unrestricted access to systems and application uh so that development can move faster
1: right uh, i'm gonna use this one to be my oddball one as well because i think that uh as long as it's not prod you mm-hmm. uh, you are probably doing this to some degree. And so rather than trying to whack-a-mole it <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, away, find a way to actually support it. So this one, uh, I'm going to say like a three- because normally it sounds like you would want it to be a one. You don't want to grant people access to prod, absolutely. Okay, it's a one for prod. But outside of prod, uh, I would say it's more like a three because I think the right approach is to find a way to support unrestricted access Uh, you know, I find that, you know, even when I join a new company, if I want to deploy something, I often don't have the privileges I need. And it takes quite a long time to get set up to have those privileges. So I just use my own personal account for doing like uh, a deployment of the rough infrastructure, following a blog or something like that, where I am complete owner of everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in an organization, the way to do that would be to have a service control policy or something like that, that uh, or some automation that just annihilates everything on a weekly basis. So you have complete, everybody has their own AWS account or everybody has their own GCP project where they are owner. Start from there and then uh, just make sure that it it doesn't accumulate, that this like very one-off kind of wild west zone doesn't ever touch your data that's important and doesn't ever... Become a dependency, like because you don't have time to move it into a proper process. No, you have to have some way to like completely annihilate it. But if you can do that, then uh, actually granting people unrestricted access to systems is a great thing. It makes developers go faster. You just need to do it in a controlled way.
0: So the standard architect response, right? It depends. It depends on the environment. If it is fraud, <laughs> right. then one other environments maybe three. No, I, I can totally yeah. uh, relate to it. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, The next one is um, conducting periodic security audits uh, to identify vulnerabilities, threats, and weaknesses in your systems and applications.
1: Right. Um, So I think there's great value in having a third party come in and kick the tires. Uh, but. They, they can be expensive, $100,000 plus uh, for a good third party pen testing. And so you really want to make sure that you design your pen test to get value out of it. And uh, mm-hmm. very often, you know, it's a checkbox exercise that you need to do for, you know, a, a, a compliance uh, program or something like that. In that case, uh, you know it might have the value just out of that ability to check the box, and so you aren't really that interested in the results. That's unfortunate because it's not a great experience for the pen testing team. It's not a great value for you, but you know it's worth hundred thousand dollars, whatever. Uh, I think much better is if you can think about like how do I design this. Uh, pen test this annual pen test so that it fits the criteria for our checkbox, but so that it adds something that we don't know yet. Um, and so, if you already do mass scans or uh, spiderfoot or something like that, and you already have a good feel for what your tax surface is from an external perspective, you probably mm-hmm. want to think, about, okay, how do we give them some internal perspective? Maybe let them review our work or something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, catching the external pen testing team up to date on where you mm-hmm. see this isn't a bad way to start uh, as a pen tester you know a, a working for them for three years very often the company wanted that complete black box experience they would just want to know what can a, an average you know hacker out there on the web find the problem is there's like way more hackers than you can get coverage for in that like you know two-week period that you have the engagement for uh there's a lot of creativity out there a bug bounty program is better for you know that yes. sort of thing where you get a lot of different types of backgrounds and a lot of niche attackers who just attack their niche against one and mm-hmm. and another and, another. Um, and so yeah I, I think these things are really important. Internally, it should be a continuous thing. So as much as possible, you shouldn't like run a scan once a month or once a quarter or something like that. It should be more like, what is preventing me from just making sure, like in a streaming sense, I've got a good baseline. And every time I deploy something new, I do the check on the way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, m- makes a lot of sense. Uh, the third one that I want to ask about is providing training and awareness programs to employees uh, to help them. Identify and respond to potential security threats.
1: Yes, um, this one I give as a one, but it's really important that you think about it, and and you should probably not have a one size fits all security training program, um, because it's going to bore the engineers who have like a fair bit of you know experience mm-hmm. in securing certain types of things, especially data and that sort of thing, and it's going to be too much or not have enough coverage for other people who are in finance. Like there's a lot of really interesting attacks that go on in finance in like, you know, forged, uh, you know, uh, uh, (laughs) I'm thinking of the word in Spanish because I've been speaking a lot of Spanish lately. Factores (laughs) uh, like like bills, people will like send bills to finance departments and you know, Mm -hmm. big companies like Google have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars out to people who have no business. You know, they, they just, uh, they just asked for money <laughs> essentially. Right. <laughs> so like each department has something like that where you need to work with them. And if you put mm-hmm. all of, or, you know, please review our security resources into one basket, you, you're not maybe going to have the time, uh, for that team later. Legal is another really important one. Like there definitely needs to be a lot more, um, uh, work, joint work between legal departments and security departments. There's so much overlap there and they're very often siloed. So like designing mm-hmm. things that, uh, that are right for each department, I think is, a uh, makes it a one. And if you're not doing that, it's probably a three.
0: Okay. So, uh, makes sense. Like, uh, you cannot have, like, I, I like the thing that you highlighted right? that you cannot have one size fits all training. Uh, Depending on the uh, experience level, depending on the team you are speaking with, uh, the training should be uh, uh, tailored that way, right? Uh, So yeah, uh, you're spot on on that. Uh, Yeah, so that brings us uh, to the end of the episode. Thank you so much, uh, Kestin, for joining and sharing your learning uh, with us.
1: Peru, it's been absolutely great talking with you. Thanks a lot for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and to our viewers, thank you for watching. Hope you have learned something new. If you have any questions around security, share those at scale 2 We'll get those answered by an expert in the security space. See you in our next episode. Thank you.